Well, we are, uh, we're going to get rolling with Isaiah part three. We'll see if there'll be a part four. I'm really on the bubble about this because we've got 26 chapters. Either I go at warp speed and everybody's heads are going to be swimming or I slow down and I know I feel like I'm doing an injustice if I just pedal to the metal. <laughs> no, it's down Route 94. Yeah, just a couple more miles down there. Yeah. That's, well, that was really funny, Justin. <laughs> Am I in the right room? Is this the right class? Sorry. No, sorry. This is just the Bible. Womp, womp. Let me pray for us, and then we will uh, start our journey um, into Exod- or Exodus, Isaiah part 3. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for these people here. Thank you for your word. We're excited that we can be together and look at your word and learn from it, Lord. There's so much in this last part of Isaiah, Lord, so much about you, so much about us and uh, your attributes and, uh, Lord, your Lord, your judgment for sin, but yet the hope of New Jerusalem, the hope of our redemption. So be with us as we seek to dig into this and learn. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so just to kind of level set us, uh, we got the prophet Isaiah, of course, in the Old Testament. I'm going to get rid of these things over here so that other people can see. We know that Ron wasn't leading, because if Ron was leading, it would be up there. (laughs) That one, too? Ron, you're robbing us of your handsomeness. (laughs) I was serious. Isaiah, Old Testament prophet, he's been speaking to Israel's leaders. We have this tension that we've already seen through the first two parts of this, where there's the tension with the messages of judgment that are coming, intermingled with the messages of hope, and that will come as well. And the main theme is trust God instead of blank. What have been some of the blanks that Israel has trusted in? What things has Israel trusted in instead of God? What's that? Other countries' politics, absolutely. Other countries' military, other countries' politics, Egypt and Assyria and Ethiopia and a bunch of other things. Um, Their gods, absolutely. We're going to talk about that as well. False idols they have trusted in and they have worshipped. It's a good thing that this doesn't relate to us at all today. Because we're so far past that. Like, we are never tempted to trust anything else in place of God, right? Except that we are. <laughs> oh, but we are. We are. So we trust, we trust in comfort. We trust in material wealth. We trust in idolatry. We trust in pleasure. We trust in money. We trust in whatever. Our own politics. The list goes on and on and on. So a very, very uh, current message as well for our time. Uh, after uh, chapter 39, which we last left our heroes, right? the exile has happened. What God has uh, been saying was going to happen has happened. 
the northern kingdom was invaded and exiled by Assyria in the 700s, and the southern kingdom was invaded and exiled by Babylon in the 500s. And so that, that actually happened. The problem is that we get into this territory now starting in 40, where he's kind of, this is post-exilic, so this has already happened, but then Isaiah died. So you'll see in the video that we'll show momentarily that it's like, who is speaking then if Isaiah has died? Is he speaking into the future? Is it yet a third author in Isaiah? Are we in full-blown Trito Isaiah, or what is going on? So the video is going to give us a good overview of 40 through 66. I don't know if we're going to get up to 66 tonight. We will see how we do. But until then, hopefully the video shall... Nope, I went the wrong way. Shall work, because this is a distance thing. One more. There we go. The book of the prophet Isaiah. Turning up In the, the first video, we explored chapters 1 to 39, which was Isaiah's message of judgment and hope for Jerusalem. He accused Israel's leaders of rebellion against God and said that through Assyria and then Babylon, Israel's kingdom would come crashing down in an act of God's judgment. And so chapter 39 concluded with Isaiah predicting Jerusalem's fall to Babylon and the exile. And a hundred years after Isaiah, it all sadly came to pass. But Isaiah's greater hope was for a new purified Jerusalem where God's kingdom would be restored through the future messianic king. And all nations would come together in peace. And so chapters 40 and following explore this great hope. The first main section, chapters 40 to 48, open with an announcement of hope and comfort for Israel. The people are told that the Babylonian exile is over and that Israel's sin has been dealt with, a new era is beginning. So they should all return home to Jerusalem where God himself will bring his kingdom and all nations will see his glory. Now, let's stop for a moment because this opening announcement raises a big question. That is, who is saying all of this? Whose voice are we hearing in these words of hope? The perspective of the prophet in these chapters is that of somebody who's living after the exile, in other words, in the time period described by Ezra and Nehemiah. But Isaiah died 150 years before any of that. So what are we supposed to make of this? Well, there are many who think that it's still Isaiah in his own day speaking, but that he's been prophetically transported, so to speak, 200 years into the future, and that he's speaking to future generations as if the exile was passed. However, the book of Isaiah itself gives us some clues that something else is probably going on. In chapters 8 and 29 and 30, we're told that after Isaiah was rejected by Israel's leaders, that he wrote and sealed up in a scroll all of his messages of judgment and hope, and that he passed it on to his disciples as a witness for days to come. Eventually, Isaiah died, waiting for God to vindicate his words. Now remember, chapters 1 to 39 were designed to show us that Isaiah's predictions of judgment were fulfilled in the exile. He's a true prophet. And so after exile is over, Isaiah's disciples, who have treasured his words for so long, open up the scroll and begin applying his words of hope to their own day. So on this view, the book of Isaiah consists of that first collection of Isaiah's words as well as the writings of his prophetic disciples that God uses to extend Isaiah's message of hope to future generations. Whichever view you end up taking, everybody agrees that these chapters are announcing that the future hope has come, that God is fulfilling Isaiah's prophetic promises. And so the prophet hopes that Israel will respond by becoming God's servant, 
that is, after experiencing God's justice and mercy through history, that they will now begin to share with the nations who God truly is. But that's not what's happening. Israel, instead of bearing witness to the nations, is actually complaining and even accusing God. They say, the Lord doesn't pay attention to our trouble. In fact, he's ignoring our cause. The Babylonian exile, understandably, caused Israel to lose faith in their God. I mean, maybe he's not that powerful. Maybe the gods of Babylon are way greater than our God. And so the rest of these chapters, 41 to 47, are set up like a trial scene. God is responding to these doubts and accusations with the following arguments. He says first that the exile to Babylon was not divine neglect. Rather, it was divinely orchestrated as a judgment for Israel's sin. And second, it was for Israel's sake that God raised up Persia to conquer Babylon so they could come back home fulfilling Isaiah's words. So the right conclusion that Israel should draw is that their God is the king of history, not the idols of the nations. In the fall of Babylon and the rise of the Persian king Cyrus, Israel should see God's hand at work and so become his servant, telling the nations who he is. But by the end of the trial, chapter 48, we find that Israel is still as rebellious and hard-hearted as their ancestors. And so God disqualifies them as his servant, but God still is on a mission to bless the nations. And so the prophet says God's going to do a new thing to solve this problem, which moves into the next section, 49 to 55. We're introduced to a figure who's called God's servant, who's going to fulfill God's mission and do what Israel has failed to do. God gives this servant the title Israel and sends this person on a mission to, first of all, restore the people of Israel back to their God, but second, to become God's light to the nations. And we're told that this servant is empowered by God's spirit to announce good news and to bring God's kingdom over all of the nations. It sounds just like the Messianic king from chapters 9 and 11. But then we learn the surprising way of how the servant will bring God's kingdom. He's going to be rejected and beaten and ultimately killed by his own people. In reality, as he's being accused and sentenced to death, he's dying on behalf of the sin of his own people. The prophet says the servant's death is a sacrifice of atonement for the people's evil and rebellion. And then, after his death, all of a sudden, the servant is just alive again. And we hear that by his death, he provided a way to make people righteous. That is, to put them in a right relationship with God. And so this section concludes by describing two ways people can respond to the servant. Some will respond with humility and turn from their sins and accept what God's servant did on their behalf. These people are called the servants and also the seed. Remember the holy seed from chapter 6. These are the ones who will experience the blessing of the messianic kingdom. But there are others who are called simply the wicked, and they reject both the servant and his servants, which brings us to the final section of the book, 56 to 66, where the servants inherit God's kingdom. These chapters are beautifully designed as a symmetry that brings together all of the themes of the book. At the very center are three beautiful poems that describe how the spirit-empowered servant is announcing the good news of God's kingdom to the poor. And he reaffirms all of the promises of hope from earlier in the book. The new Jerusalem, inhabited by God's servants, will be the place from which God's justice and mercy and blessing flow out to all the nations of the world. And surrounding these poems are two long prayers of repentance, where the servants confess Israel's sin, and they grieve over all of the evil they see in the world around them. And so they ask God to forgive them and that his kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. 
Now, on each side of these prayers are collections of more poems that contrast the destiny of the servants with that of the wicked who persecute them. God says he's going to bring his justice on all who pollute his good world with their evil and selfishness and idolatry, and that he's going to remove them from his city forever. But the servants, those who are humble before God and who repent and own their evil, they are forgiven and they will inherit the new Jerusalem, which we discover is an image for an entirely renewed creation where death and suffering are gone forever. And this brings us to the very outer frame of this part of the book. In this renewed world of God's kingdom, people from all nations are invited to come and join the servants of God's covenant family so that everyone can know their creator and redeemer. And so the book of Isaiah ends with the very grand vision of the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises. Through the suffering servant king, God creates a covenant family of all nations who are awaiting the hope of God's justice in bringing a renewed creation, where God's kingdom finally comes here on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the very powerful hope of the book of Isaiah. Okay. All right, so let's uh, circle back to Isaiah chapter 40. So a little bit different this week, perhaps. Oh, I went the wrong way again. Darn it. Down means, nope, not that. Nope, nope, nope. The book of the prophet Isaiah. In the first video, we explored chapters 1 to 39, which was Isaiah's message of judgment and hope for Jerusalem. Don't make he accused me Israel's leaders of rebellion against Please God don't make me go and said that through Assyria and then Babylon, Israel's kingdom would come crashing down in an act of God's judgment. <laughs> and so chapter 39 concluded with Isaiah predicting Jerusalem's fall to Babylon and the exile. And a hundred years after Isaiah, it all Please stand came by. to pass. But Isaiah's greater hope Ron's was for a upstairs. new purified Jerusalem where God's kingdom would be restored. Ah. You just advance it to that next slide there, Ronald. Pretty please. Thank you. Now, hopefully, I will do this correctly. Could always try my phone again. Okay. All right. We're going to rise above technical challenges. Isaiah chapter 40. So a little bit different tonight. I think we're going to read some bigger chunks of this and just kind of soak in it a little bit. Um, so Isaiah chapter 40, let's look at the first eight verses of that. Um, and we sh you should notice a dramatically different tone from where we had been. And so Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 1, says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
All right, so what do we notice just in those verses? What's, what's different from where we've been? And I tried not to put the answers up there, but there's a change of language, right? It's, we were like doom and gloom and judgment and all this is going to happen, and now suddenly it's hope and comfort. Like he starts out, comfort, comfort my people. Why is that happening? Why, why this change? What do you think? Why is it changing? Yes. Our sin is not the end. I love that. Yeah. The idea that even Israel, right, in their crazy sin, God still is faithful in that, and he's still faithful for us, right? Our sin is not the end. And it's going to drift into this Next kind of part that comes through 40 through 66, which is a focus on who God is and God's attributes, which are going to become very, very central. So if we keep going there, I'll read the next chunk, uh, starting in verse 9, which is exactly what that is. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with the young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who, who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like the fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him, and they are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and it casts for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? And he goes on and on and on talking about who God is. But um, we see maybe something familiar. I heard some, uh, some comments as we were reading that. Anybody recognize that song? Yeah, behold our God comes from Isaiah 40, right? All of Handel's Messiah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm sure there's many others, right? No, it's, we'll see how we do on time, okay? Get back to you. <laughs> but yet in all of this, in verse 27, Israel complains. Verse 27 says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? This is God accusing them. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. 
He's almost saying, uh, this Israel accusing God, like, why did you do it this way? You're not listening to me. You're trampling on my rights. You're oppressing me. It's like, well, no, he did warn you for several hundred years that this was going to happen. So, sorry, try again. But they have lost faith in that. So, jump over to chapter 41. It kind of sets up that trial scene. It says, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us draw together near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. So we have this trial scene kind of setting up again. He calls on the coastlands. Why does he call on the coastlands? He says, listen up, uh, beaches. Why is he calling beaches? Why is he calling? It's a family show. Why is he calling on the coastlands? <laughs> what are they? If you're in a trial, right, you call witnesses, right? And so he's calling again heavens and earth to testify against Israel that they did not do what the covenant, they did not fulfill the covenant. So he's calling on the coastlands to be a witness in this trial. And he says in verse 4, this kind of like jaw-dropping thing at the end, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. And this is where we kind of get into the attributes of God that are going to be repeated throughout all of this in, in the 40s and on into the 50s. But we see God's attribute of sovereignty in here. That he is, he is the one doing this. And verse 4 says, who's performed and done this? Who's called the generations from the beginning? It's him. It's God. He's done that. Any other attributes? Yes, Ronald. <laughs> Isaiah 40 verse 22 is an argument used for flat earth. Okay, I did not know that. We'll have to get back to you on that. Thank you. Let's bring it, bring it back around now. Any other attributes in verse 4 that we see? We talked about a sovereignty. What else do you think is in there? These things will come up over and over again. If he's the first and the last... Eternal. Yeah, God's eternal, which is like, how do you even wrap your head around that, right? Look at uh, chapter 41, verses 5 through 10. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes with the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, for whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
That last verse is pretty familiar, right? Very, very familiar to us. It's a good verse to memorize, those who struggle with uh, fear, worry, and anxiety. But think about where this is in context, right? You think about Israel and what they've been through, and now they're in exile and post-exile, and what's going to happen, and is, is, is God going to bring us back to the land? Did he promise? Where are you? Right? You saw that part in the movie where they were starting to doubt if God was even powerful enough at all. Like maybe the Babylon gods are stronger than God. I don't know. But in this, we see God comforting them. Fear not, for I am with you. Don't be dismayed. I am your God. He's going to strengthen you. He's going to help you. He's going to uphold you, not just with his right hand, but with his righteous right hand. And we know he's good and just in all of it. It's a little refuge of hope. Like we get these kind of islands of hope in the midst of this, even still, right? God kind of gets scary language for a minute and saying like, I'm he, I did this, I, I am eternal, but I still know you, I have called you, I will protect you, I will comfort you, I will strengthen you. So how does that comfort us today as American 2021 Christians? We think we parachute out of this context, right? Because this is written to Israel, but how does that apply to us today? What are some ways we can apply that promise of verse 10? God's in control no matter what? Yeah. Yeah, the idea that um, you look back on redemptive history. And you look back on what he's done, what he's done with his people, and how even though it looks very, very dark for them right now, right? Yeah. Yeah, that idea of kind of con um, coming down from heaven, right, and, and holding our hand in that. Yeah. Reaching out for us upholding you like you know like when the kids were little right you know when they you'd hold them by the hand and they'd trip you know you just like it's okay you got them yeah that's a good point yeah oh really We're going to get to that in two weeks. Jesus walking on the water. Yeah, it was a great example of Peter sinking, taking his eyes off Jesus, and then Jesus grabbing him, holding him. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, it, it, it like, we, we put handles to try and understand God. And, and when we have, like, a physical hand that actually grabs us like a little kid, right? Yeah. Ro. Anthropomorphize the Almighty. Yes. Yes. A gentle old grandpa who just kind of winks. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's a, that's a great point because we, we look at the differences between what like common perceptions of God are 
and then what Scripture says God is. It's, yeah, I think, I think the common perception of God is that He is kind of that benevolent old grandpa that just kind of winks at sin and, you know, smacks us on the butt and says, God, you little rascal, just don't let it happen again. But that's not the God of Isaiah 40 or anything else that we're going to see going forward in His holiness and His power and His sovereignty and all that. Yeah, Frank. Mm. Isaiah 41.10? Yeah. This is a great passage to memorize, and it's a great passage in comfort. Um, I've used it many times in, in visitation and, and those moments, too, where the end is near or someone's just gone through a very big crisis, right? This is just a colossal anchor for the soul of who our God is, right? Yeah, I am. Yeah? Do not fear, you worm. <laughs> Do not fear, you worm. <laughs> Yeah. 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 And, and again, bring it into context, right? You, you think about Israel. It's hard for Israel to think they're all that right now because they're not. I mean, they've, they've lost their land. They've lost many lives. They've lost everything. And now they're in exile. They have no idea if they're going to get back or not. So it's a difference between a God-centered religion and a man-centered religion. I mean, God really put them in their place and we can learn from that, that we are not. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's not a man-centered religion. If it's, if it's a man-centered religion, then God serves us, right? But if it's a God-centered religion, then we're serving God. And you read Isaiah, this, ch- this chunk where we're in right now, it's impossible to walk away with, like, God owes me because I'm awesome. Yeah, bro. Oh, yeah. Yep. They selected their idols. And... <laughs> yep. Yeah. They selected their idols and I selected you. Yeah. That's true. Very good. Uh, 42. Let's see. I'm going to press the right button. 42 starts this kind of language of the servant, which doesn't actually pick back up again until several chapters later. But 42 starts this language of the servant. So if we look at 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice, and he will, grow, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Until so we get this language of the servant coming in, right? This was supposed to be Israel. Israel was supposed to be God's servant. They were called to be God's servant. How did they do at being God's servant? Not so good, right? Yeah. 
They, they ultimately turned from God. They ultimately rejected God, right? Now, this should be pretty familiar to you, right? He's not going to cry aloud or lift his voice. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. I'm reading The Bruised Reed right now by Richard Sibbies, which I recommend everybody to read, a nice old Puritan dead guy who is amazing. But who said this? Where was this in the New Testament? And notice I'm not giving you the answers on these slides. I finally figured it out. It only took me like two years. Uh, Close. It is Jesus, but not quite this passage in Isaiah, right? It was Jesus um, back in Matthew 12, which actually... uh, Matthew ascribes to Jesus himself. So Matthew 12, starting at verse 18, right? Um, it's Matthew speaking, he's, or starting at verse 15, rather, of Matthew 12. Jesus then, right after he healed the guy with the withered hand, they wanted to kill him, the Pharisees. He withdrew, many followed him, he healed them all, he ordered them not to make him known. He says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then he goes forward and just dumps this whole passage of Isaiah on everybody. And Matthew attributes that to Jesus. And so Matthew says, guess what, guys? This is the servant. So not only is Jesus around doing the works of the Messiah, right? Not only is he teaching with authority, he's then bringing in these passages from Isaiah that all the the Pharisees and all the faithful Jewish people are memorized in Sunday school. So they'd be like, I know exactly what he's talking about. Like he's saying that that guy's the servant. That guy is the Messiah. And so as we, as we see that, Isaiah is hugely, hugely quoted uh, in the um, New Testament. And that's why Jesus is the new and better servant, right? It's that figure and that type, right? Israel was supposed to be God's servant to the nations, but they failed, right? Jesus is perfect where they have failed, just like Jesus is perfect where we have failed and we have sinned. Let's keep going in chapter 42. Look at verse 8. We start to get into um, some really hardcore attributes here. 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things now I declare. Before they sent forth, I tell you of them. What, what does he say in verse 8? I'm the Lord, that's my name. My glory I give to no other. What is, what, what is he talking about there? What is, what is, what's the big deal? My glory I give to no other. So what? I don't give my glory to anyone else either. Does that make me special? Like, what, what, is, what is he saying? He's a jealous God, right? Why is he a jealous God then? Because he's, because he's in, right? There's no, other, there's no other competition, right? And so his nation then, who is then worshiping other idols and giving all this glory to other idols, God's like, it doesn't work that way. There is no other gods. I'm the only one. My glory I do not give to another, right? We get an idea of the massive scope of God's sovereignty, his power, his glory, And even today, it's impossible for God to share his glory with anyone else. It's not 
Allah, it's not Buddha, it's not humanism, it's not any other gods. Like, there is no other God. He's going to share his glory with no one else, right? So how does that, again, let's transport this now into 2021 America. How does the fact that God doesn't give his glory to anyone or anything else help us in 2021 America? Be Christians. How does this truth help us? This is a foundational truth. If you listen to Andy John Piper, like this is one of his favorite raps. Like he goes on and on and on about this verse. He loves this verse. My glory I give to another, no other. What do we think? How does that help us? What do we see the world doing? Running after everything else, right? Giving glory to everything. Any new idea, any new thought, any new theology, any new whatever gender, marriage, sexuality, anything, any new process, any new anything. They give glory to that. They give credence to that. And sometimes we can be tempted to get a little upset about that, right? That we might think that's ridiculous. It might, and it is, but we might get upset. We might, get, we might go too far with our passion, and we have to remember that this is first and foremost an offense against God. Right? It's offensive to us when we see our country or we see people you know, more descending more into sin and offensiveness to God and blasphemy against God. But we have to remember that first and foremost, against, it's against God. It's, it's a sin against God's glory. God does not treat glory thieves lightly. So we've got we've to have that in the, in the proper place there. Quick little refuge of hope if we jump into 43.2. Very familiar passage, you'll probably hear it. When you pass through the waters, I, b- I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. And then verse 3, why? Because I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Familiar passage, right? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. You pass through the rivers, when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Another refuge of hope in the middle of everything else that's going on, in the middle of his attributes. Because it can be kind of scary when you're reading God's attributes after a while. You're just like, I know, ah, you're powerful, you know everything. And then yet he gets personal again in the midst of it, right? Our God is transcendent, right? He's over all and he's through all and for all, but he's also imminent. He's also with us in that. And we see the character of our God in scriptures like this, where we get that fact. We get like, yeah, sure, he's over all, and he knows all, and he's all-powerful, but he's also with us on a Tuesday. He also knows our hopes, our thoughts, our fears, and all of that, and he's with us. So it should, it should encourage us, right? Yeah, yep, Definitely. Our life is full of uh, a lot of high waters sometimes and a lot of low waters, right? No offense intended to the waters family. seven. everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. What do we see there about our God? He's creator. He created everyone. And why did he create everyone? For his glory, right? So everybody who's made in the image of God were made then, Westminster Confession of Faith, anyone, right? We're made to enjoy God or glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
That's what every human being's purpose in the world is. Everyone is called by my name who are created for my glory. What stops us from glorifying God? Ourselves, right? (laughs) Everything. (laughs) Sin, selfishness, pride. And he has come to uh, restore that image within us through faith in Christ. And what else do we see in this? So he's a creator. We're, we're created for his glory. What else? What else can we grab about this attributes of our God in this one little verse in Isaiah 43, 7? What does he... Do we have a plan? Is God up there just making people and sending them out on some sort of weird conveyor belt and going off into the world? Or does he have purposes for us? He says, it says we're called. It says we're called by his name. And it says whom I formed and made. There's a little bit of a, uh, of a plan there. There's a little bit of, no, no, I'm the creator and I'm creating things for a certain purpose and I'm creating people for certain purposes, right? Overarching, we know our number one purpose is to glorify God. But each one, there's this idea of forming and creating, like he's given each of us gifts and abilities and passions and talents and wired us certain ways to do these things in the specific areas for his glory. So it's encouraging to us to remember um, the attributes of our God. Yeah. It gets very personal, absolutely. He knows every hair on our heads. I shaved them all off this morning, so. Oh, there's one. Yeah. Yeah. This is why we need the Old Testament, right? This is why we need Isaiah, right? Let's uh, jump over to 44. Look at 6 through 8. Here we go. No, no, no. There we go. Okay, 44, 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord God, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Man, the Bible is so confusing sometimes. Who is like me? Which is really weird because there are parts of Isaiah that you're just like, I don't understand. But then it's like this one, besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There's no rock. I know not any. This is divine trash talking at its finest, right? God's like, "Uh, any other gods around here? I don't think so. No, there's not because I'm the only one. It's impossible If there's any that want to claim it, let's go. Somebody step up and say that you're God. But, you know, that's not going to happen. What other uh, attributes can we see in this as we look at those couple of verses in Isaiah 44, 6 through 7? Infinite. Infinite, eternal, right? I'm the first and the last, right? Talking about Hebrews. Talking about Hebrews at the diner. Chopping it up at Hebrews. Um, what, what else about God? He's eternal. He's infinite. He's sovereign because he declares the end from the beginning. 
It's crazy, right? Our little brains can't understand that. What about the who is like me and apart from me there is no God? What does that tell us? Commandment one. Yeah, there's no gods before me, right? There's no other gods, right? We don't. So the worldview that says there's many gods or polytheistic, right? There's no, there's not. There's one God. There's one God. He's exclusive. I know that truth is offensive, but Isaiah said it. So, yeah, we were just talking about, yeah. As if there were other gods, but we can make them little g gods, right? We can make them idols, right? Uh, so we jump into 44. Let's see if I can get through the end of this right before we get to the servant, and we'll pick that up next week. But 44 uh, in verses 21 through 28, something huge happens. He says, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you won't be forgotten by me. I blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Right, still, still merciful, still saying return to me. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and I will be glorified in Israel. Uh, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. He didn't have a creation team. Okay, It was by himself. Who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, Shall or she shall be inhabited in the cities of Judah. They will be built and they will raise up their ruins. Like, just think about that. Like, he's saying, Yeah, they're in exile right now and it's a smoldering pile of, of ruins, but I'm saying, Me, God, the only one God, I'm saying they'll be back and they will build on those ruins. It's so amazing. And then he gets into exactly how that's going to happen. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up the rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. This is a crazy prophecy that makes no chronological sense. And I know the answer is up there, but why does it make no chronological sense? Because... Cyrus doesn't exist yet, <laughs> not for hundreds of years. And so Isaiah saying this is like, people are like, what does that mean? That it, did he actually just name Cyrus and this is going to happen? Is, is his prophecy that accurate? Cyrus is going to be the king of Persia in, in the 500s. Again, he's going to be the one that's eventually God's going to use to conquer and judge Babylon, right? Who just wiped out the southern kingdom. And so, yeah, I would say, yeah, I would say Isaiah just nailed this. I would say through divine inspiration that Isaiah nailed the name of Cyrus and it just shows this crazy level of prophecy and spirit's direction that the Lord gave to Isaiah. 
the uh, Jewish historian Josephus records a story which Cyrus, reading this, so King Cyrus now reading Isaiah's prophecy, was so impressed with the divine power to tell the future that he eagerly sought out to fulfill what was written about him here. <laughs> it's like, hey, wait a minute. I'm Cyrus. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> and then he goes on to see what he's supposed to do, and he actually does it. It's so crazy to think about that the Lord would have that level of specificity. That's always a hard word for me to say in the prophecies and that, again, we see him using pagan rulers for his people and for his purposes. Isn't that crazy? And then we have extra biblical historians telling us that as well. All right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, we know what's going to happen. We read it. <laughs> we read it in Isaiah Scrolls. Oh, wow. I did not know that. That's awesome. Um, 45. Look at verse 7. Let's blow our minds before we get out of here. Verse 7. One of my uh, first theology professor, Dr. Bruce Ware, calls this a spectrum text. For I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. Or in other translations, it says evil. I am the Lord who does all of these things. What on earth? How do, we, how, do we, how do we resolve this? We have a text in Scripture that God is saying, I do good and I do evil. I create life and I or light and darkness. I'm the Lord who does all these things. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's this yeah, it's the jaw-dropping picture of the scope of God's sovereignty in that, right? That we've got to bump this up against his character, right? Em, you were going to say something too? Right. Exactly. Because we have to bounce that up against who God says he is. Right? There's not a shred of darkness in God. There's not a, no possible evil, no possible sin. And so when we hit passages like this, right, we've got to bump it up against the rest of Scripture. And, and we can't define our theology by one verse. And, and we have to say, yeah, there's James, there's no shifting shadows, right? Um, plenty of other passages of scriptures tell us that there's no, uh, John 1, there's no, he is light, there's no darkness in him at all, right? 
all of that. Um, so it can't be that God is evil because we have the rest of Scripture that tells us He's sinless and perfect. But we also know that He's sovereign. And therein lies the hope, right? If evil is just evil, then who cares, right? I'm channeling Ravi Zacharias right now. If evil is just evil, like who cares? It's, it's gone and it happens. But if God is sovereign as He says He's sovereign, then He stands indirectly behind evil waiting to redeem it and use it for his purposes. He can direct evil. He can redeem it. And we look at many things in Scripture. Like we, we look at what just happened with Israel. We look at Assyria. We look at Babylon. Like those were evil things coming into a country and destroying it and exiling people. Those are sinful, terrible, awful war atrocities that God allowed in order to judge his people. He used that evil that was in the heart of those nations to judge his people, just like he used the heart, the evil that was in the heart of the Jews and the Romans to put Jesus on the cross for the greatest good. And so God is not evil. He does not do evil, but he stands indirectly behind it, ready to direct it and ready to redeem it. And that must be tremendous hope for us because then evil cannot have the last word because God is sovereign over it. So we hit one of these texts and it hurts our head, these spectrum texts, as Dr. Ware said, right? It is, it, it should encourage us too because we see plenty of evil these days and God's still sovereign over it. All right, last one. Just jump over to 48 and we see um, in verses 12, we see again God begging Israel almost, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel whom I called, I am he I'm the first and the last. I think we've ran into that three times now. My hand laid the foundations of the earth. Again, he's creator. And my hand spread out the heavens. When I call them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him and brought him and he will prosper his way. Probably talking about Cyrus there. Draw near and hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time that it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me in his spirit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way that you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. It's like the Lord lamenting over his people. He's just like, why did you have to disobey me? Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never have been cut off or destroyed before me. Go out from Babylon, free from Chal uh, flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it to the ends of the earth. The Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts, right? recalling Israel history. He made water flow from them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. There is no peace or no rest, says the Lord, for the wicked. Very, very famous verse at the end there. No rest for the wicked, right? No peace for the wicked, right? A thousand bad rock songs in the 70s and 80s probably were launched by that. <laughs> but verse 22, what is that telling us? There can be no peace for the wicked. What's that telling us? He just went through this whole thing with Israel, rehearsed a little bit of his, uh, history for Israel. Why is there no peace for the wicked? 
Is that up there? <laughs> Rest is only in God. You can't read that. That was good. Peace can only be found in the Lord, right? The great Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. It's the story of our souls. Right? Israel just plays that out. Our hearts are always going to be restless. We're not going to find peace unless we are reconciled with our Creator. It's impossible. Israel's not going to find peace unless they reconcile with their king. Right? And then he kind of changes gears again in 49 through the end. He's going to talk about the servant and he's going to do a new thing. You know, he's doing it. 43. Come on, Ron, back me up on that. 43.19, behold, I'm doing a new thing. It springs forth, do you not perceive it? 48.6 says, you have heard, now all see this. Will you not declare it from this time forward? I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. What new things, you ask? What possibly could be new? New covenant. Yeah. It's like he's actually literally saying, she's going full Sunday school answer up here, Jesus. Right? It's, it's right. But that's what it's, it's the right answer because that's where we're headed. That's where we're headed next with the suffering servant. And he's been saying it all along. New plan. It's not like he was changing his plan, but it's like time to then enact the new plan because what happened, I told you it was going to happen. It happened. Now it's time for the new covenant. I'm doing a new thing. Yes. I am not, like new as in different, as in something completely, like, like reactionary God. Oh, yes, I'm, I'm just thinking of all of the thousands of sermons that have been heard this week. Oh. Where there's new, a new breaking out. A new breaking out of the Spirit, a new breakthrough, a new, a new level He has for you, the year of surrender, whatever it might be. Yes. I'm, that's what I'm saying. It doesn't contextually apply very well to those things. It contextually applies to what's coming in the servant, which is the new covenant. Blessings such as those may flow out of the new servant, but we've got to be careful there. So, all right. Another successful midweek. <laughs> Isaiah's a bear, isn't it? It's just like... I just feel like I'm hacking through a forest. But, and every once in a while before I cut down a branch, I'm like, wow, that's pretty. <laughs> All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for uh, Isaiah. Lord, help us to understand this. Help us to take some of these things that we have gleaned uh, from this quick run-through of who you are, Lord, your attributes, um, who Israel was, who we are before you, and just the hope that you don't give up the hope of your redemption that even goes beyond evil and your, your, your um, personal nature that you are with us, that we, we should not fear because you are with us, Lord, and you will uphold us with your righteous right hand. The tenderness in which you speak to Israel after they had rejected you, Lord, 
Uh, Let us be reminded of the tenderness that you speak to us in our hearts through your spirit, which points to Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our Savior. We pray it in his name. Amen.